Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, it's a genuine delight to have as my guest, Mark Sumner, who is the CEO of Robertson Sumner, which has been voted by CRN as the best sales and marketing uh, recruitment agency for 2020. And he's also the host of the Channel Chat podcast show. Mark, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. How are you doing? Very good, thank you. Tell me, would you mind giving me 60 seconds in terms of your background and how you got to where you are? Yeah, so I'm the, yeah, I'm the CEO of Robertson Sumner, which is a IT sales, marketing and technical recruitment company. Started that in 2000, so going 20 years. But over the last two years, wanted to more expand that and get a message out into the channel of trying to be the voice of the channel, to be honest with you, Marcus, through the Channel Chat podcast show, which is a, a podcast show to educate the world on issues in the channel. And that could be careers. It could be currently it's women in tech. It could be about what happened in COVID, et cetera. So I complement that with my, my recruitment business that I've been going for 20 years. And like you just said, you know, we were, we were lucky enough to have voted um, CRN Sales and Marketing Agency of the Year 2020. So that was very nice as well. Luck is described as preparation meeting opportunity. Is it? <laughs> um, so tell me this. How did you prepare your business to be as effective as you are? That's a good question. I think everyone talks about standing out from the crowd being something different. And, and let's be honest, in recruitment, it's very difficult to be different. Very, very difficult. Flash peddlers, we're, called, you know, we're as bad as state agents. No one really likes us. We're a horrible industry. And we've just seen us being selling CVs and not adding any value. And I thought one of the main differences that we've done, which I thought has really, really helped us as a business, is we started trying to talk to our customers. I know it sounds, sounds cliche. Talk to our customers and value. And through that Channel Chat podcast, I, I believe that we really did. We started getting to the heart of the problems. We actually started asking the question that really no one wanted to, differ, wanted to ask, i.e. ageism. Is ageism in, in the channel? Absolutely. Everyone's talking about we want bright young things. We want young guns. We want the next rising star. We want people on their career trajectory. That means if you're my age, over 43 or over, you're finished. You know, that, that, that's what it is. Or they might say to us, oh, we want no journeymen. They want no, we want no people that are too experienced. And that has now caused a real issue in, in the channel. But no one wants to ask these questions. So on our channel chat podcast, I really want to ask the, the channel difficult questions because those sort of questions are what people are thinking, but no one says. Okay, so let's just cut to the chase. Why are there so many shit salespeople in the channel? And why are there so many even worse channel managers? <laughs> So many shit people in the channel. People take sales as a job that they can't get anything else. So, uh, you know, they go to school, they come out of university. Oh, I can't get the job I really wanted, so I'll go into sales. So I'll actually just go into the industry that no one else wants to do. So they don't take it, they don't take it seriously as a profession. So they go in there, they get a phone, they get a laptop or they get a desktop, and they, got, they get told to call people. And they, and they also get told, you're going to get rejection, just take it on the chin. And there's no methodology, there's no thought process, there's no training in actually to, to actually make them any better. So they're just taught to go in the ring, start throwing punches, and just take a load of punches in the face, and suddenly you'll get better. Of course, we know that doesn't happen. Unless you actually get taught techniques and methodologies and process and understanding the customer, nothing will change. So unfortunately, we've got a, a raft of people in the industry that have just come into it thinking there's big money, in tech, there is good money, so they just think there's big money, and there's no there's no thought process of actually actually teaching them how to do the job. So, and in channel, quite frankly, it's worse. 
at least with the end users, they're actually getting feedback from the end users saying you're a rubbish salesperson. In channel, they're not getting any feedback. They're just going in there with you know a cup of tea and a biscuit and asking if they've got any orders. If they go back, they're actually not getting any feedback from the reseller or partner anyway. So that's, unfortunately, channel people don't get any feedback. Okay, there's an old Russian proverb that says a fish rots from the head down. That smacks to me that there is a problem with leadership. Why is it that leaders recruit people who are not fit for purpose? Why why is it that they undervalue the channel, given that 75% of all products sold globally across all 26 vertical markets are sold through partners? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, uh, 75% goes through a third party. Marcus, I don't know if it's naivety. There's there's, there's three things you mentioned there. Firstly, why is the leadership? We've got a lot of leaders in the channel that have been promoted in in an era when it was maybe easier to sell. You know, at the moment, it's quite hard to sell. There's a lot of noise to cut through in the market. You know, if you're going on social media at the moment, there's so much noise to grab through about actually video and content and terrible content and terrible marketing oh, being thrown at you all the time. It's and it's this awful. plethora of information coming over to you, which you've, 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 you've got to try and wade through to actually find anything interesting. So a lot of it is... They, they've, they've grown up in, in you know, smile and dial techniques and just get on the phone and make mo- more phone calls. And they're, they're not used to, they're not used to dealing with and selling into the, this new age of selling. So I think there's, there's techniques. There's also a, a still a, a lack of training. I, I go back to training a lot because I think there's a difference between being a successful salesperson and being a terrible manager. I'd like to think I'm a pretty good salesperson. I'm a terrible manager. I don't think really good salespeople make good managers because they're so selfish. So. Yeah. I think when you go into management, you know, there's no training. You suddenly think, oh, actually, I'm a salesperson. Now I'm going to be the manager and I have to get get on with it. And of course, a lot of them fall flat on the face. So what do they do? They meet someone. They recruit someone they think is nice, nice person, or they think they can do the job. And they hope. They put them into the, the box seat. They put them onto the chair. They give them the phone. They hope it works out. And unfortunately, life doesn't work like that. Otherwise, everyone would take on everyone they see and, and take on hundreds of people. So... You've touched on a couple of really important points here. If you look at a channel manager's role, there's strategy and design, there's finding and recruiting, there's enabling, uh, enablement and development, there's incentivizing and driving behavior, there's co-selling and co-marketing and managing and reporting. And therein lies probably 90 different functions. If you look at the operating model within the channel, You've got channel sales, you've got channel marketing, you've got channel operations. You've got to plan, recruit, engage, grow, and measure. Given the level of complexity, you've touched on ageism. Why would you not want someone who is long in the tooth, gray in the hair, uh, with masses of scar tissue? It just strikes me as crazy. To be a channel manager, it's a project management job with management and leadership, coaching and strategy, and a whole raft of business acumen that's required. And what, what do they do? They put people who could barely out of short trousers and hardly have pubic hair. And it's an interesting point, Marcus, because you, you mentioned there about co-selling, right? Good channel managers go out with the end user. They go out to the end user, they pull back to the channel, they go out to the actual the distributor, and they actually want to go on the meetings to the end user. Bad managers, bad channel people, just expect to rate up. Hi, have you got any orders this month? No. Oh, well, should we put a marketing campaign out or an email campaign out? 
give me a call next month and hopefully it's a better month. It doesn't happen like that. And unfortunately, that co-selling doesn't happen a lot in the channel. If you look at that channel model, you think actually a partner goes out, the vendor goes out with the, the channel manager. It should be a co-selling opportunity where you're going out to the prospect and you've got the person knows the technology, the person knows the, 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 the channel. It's a partnership and they sell together. That never happens. You'll get the, the channel person coming in from the vendor, selling them, spouting off about how great their products or services, and then just saying to that, that reseller, right, off you go then. You know everything about it. And the reseller then has an afternoon from another vendor in the, in the afternoon of something completely different. They have no idea what they're doing. Uh, I've got a, an example to cite here. One of my MSP clients has repeatedly had sales lost or stalled because of bringing in the channel manager from the vendor because they don't know how to sell. What they want to do is talk about product. No one in the history of humanity has ever bought your product. They never do. They don't buy recruitment. They don't buy training. They don't buy software. They don't buy hardware. They happen to be a means to an end to solve a problem and help people achieve a better outcome or a better future. And the minute that the salesperson starts blathering on about the product or uh, even worse, blue sky shine, then you can guarantee another six months to the sales cycle. And your biggest competitor, actually, if you look at the, uh, the actual statistics, is no decision. And that is frequently driven by the sellers, both channel partners and vendors, fucking it up because they don't create enough white space between the status quo and the competition and what they're selling. They haven't disrupted the status quo. They haven't established value in terms of what the difference is between staying stuck and changing. And they are awful at telling stories that make customers the hero instead of trying to make themselves or their product the hero. And you see it time and time and time again. I mean, billions of dollars a year must be being frittered away, um, and they would be better off uh, buying lottery tickets. Frankly, at least you'd have better odds of closing some, getting some money in the bank. Yeah, and we, I see that so often now from salespeople. You know, I've got this product or service that can do X, Y, Z. It will solve your problems. It will solve this. It will solve that. I'm like, you don't even know my bloody problem. My problem is dealing with people like you selling me shit like this. That's what my problem is. It's actually irritating. I get that. I get people coming up to me saying, I've got this, it will solve your lead generation problem, or this problem, or that problem. It's like, you have no idea what my problem is, and yet you're telling me and forcing me and educating me on stuff that I'm, I'm acutely aware of or unaware of, but I don't need. I don't need this stuff. So you've, you've touched on several critical points here. One, salespeople do not do good diagnosis. They jump on symptoms rather than finding the cause. They are fixated on selling their product rather than understanding that whatever they sell is just part of the overall stack of solutions that uh, a business may need. And they have no idea how to map out where those centers of dissatisfaction are. Two places to look. Your channel partners, because if you've got a good MSP or systems integrator or strategic partner, chances are they're talking to you about your strategy, what you're trying to achieve as a business, and they will hear from different parts of the business, all these different centers of dissatisfaction. The other area, and I'll probably get crucified for this, is procurement, because you've got all these flashpoints that are occurring within the business, symptoms that are being, uh, that frustrate. So they go and put in a bid for some point solution. And so 
Procurement and the Channel are two fabulous research resources that virtually no one uses in order to establish before they contact a prospect to understand how they fit and understanding that they are just one of many. And if you think about the security stack, there could be 20 vendors involved. You're irrelevant. You're just a cog in the machine if you're a vendor. Now, if you're Microsoft or you're Oracle, I get it. You've pro- you know, you're the 800-pound gorilla, and they're probably a house that does just your, you know, uses your tech with a few add-ons. But the reality is those kind of vendors will do everything they can to block out all competitors, and they'll crucify them. Now, you see Microsoft doing this all the time, giving stuff that's 60 70% fit, but they give that away for free, and then they throw a whole load of bodies at it. Uh, to try and work around any of the deficiencies. So when you're up against those sorts of people, it's a struggle. Uh, but yeah. by and large, uh, your, your mid-market and your smaller enterprises, there is a huge opportunity if only you worked with your partners as a partner, i.e. you help each other to get better, that you have a relationship based on accountability and trust, and you challenge each other, and you challenge the customer together. You go on ride-alongs together. Um, but you know, you, this just doesn't happen. It's crazy. It's, it's an interesting point, Marcus, because you talk about you know partners, and, and we all want this, of course, trusted advisors, etc. But half the partners don't know what they're bloody talking about. That's the problem as well. You'll yeah. get a customer come into a, an end user, and they'll, they'll they'll talk about well, you need to have eight by eight, you need to have Ring Central, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's because they're just some Ring Central partner. They, they could be fifty partners. They actually don't know what's going on in the actual end user. So there's no qualification. There's no actual diagnostics of the problem. There's no actually analysis of actually what is the right solution. It's almost like, look, here's my vendor portfolio. Which one do you want to pick? And then let's just pick one and let's get on with it. And of course, they wonder why. They think actually, oh, well, you know, we haven't got a great relationship with, you know, Booper or, or BP or whatever because Joe Bloggs has left now. It's like, you have no idea what's going on. They can't be trusted. That's the, that's the sad thing about it. And, and part of me feels sorry for them because the, the amount of technology is moving and it's impossible to understand every single technology stack. I, I do get that. But it's not impossible to qualify a customer about what their solution is, what their problem is, what their challenges is. That's ubiquitous for every bloody customer you've got. If you can do that, you can at least go away and say, do you know what? I've understand your problem. I'm not quite sure what solution, but I will come back to you. I'd have more respect for them if they do that instead of just piping down, trying to sell you some stuff What in two minutes of actually coming through the bloody door. Absolutely. I interviewed a guy called David Weiss, who is a new enterprise sales leader at Outreach. And he, it was a really fascinating interview. And he made the point that you don't talk about the product until maybe third or fourth meeting. That onboarding process uh, really needs to focus on understanding the internal mechanics of your own organization so you can get movement there. Because, I, you know, having spoken to people like Lisa Palmer, uh, Graham uh, Woff, and dozens of others, they all say the biggest challenge actually often is internal. Once you've got past that, you need to understand the, how businesses operate. You know, you need to understand how sales and marketing operations, finance, legal, R&D, innovation, all of those work because if you change one part of the system and you don't change other, uh, the other parts or adjust them, then it goes out of kilter and it breaks. You know, you need to have a, a really good coverage within the account, and you've touched on it there. On average, in enterprise sales, typically most salespeople 
only cover one to two people. Fred's left, so now we've lost the BP account. Well, that's just fucking crazy because you should have covered deep and wide. You should be, you, you know, you need to understand who the power authority figures are, who the sub decision makers are, influencers, recommenders, specifiers, technical buyers, financial buyers. You need to ha- know who has high, medium, and low influence on any deal. You need to understand who's responsible, accountable, consulted, informed. You need to know who's friend or foe or neutral or unknown. And if I look at most CRM and you look for that kind of information, it's empty. (laughs) You're lucky if you get 20% of any value, uh, 20% of the information in the CRM. Marcus, it's too much like hard work. That's why salespeople look at that and I think, oh, well, you know, I've got a good relationship with Joe Bloggs. We go out for a beer with him, et cetera. Joe tells me everything that's going on. Joe, Joe goes, the account's gone, and they wonder why the account's gone because salespeople are lazy. They don't want to do this profiling. They don't want to do this hard work. They don't want to actually go through these accounts and think, I'll get all these stakeholders and all these influence. It's too much like hard work because there's so many people in the channel that have been used to receiving a phone call. Oh, great, we've got a deal. Fantastic. Putting the phone down, counting the commission check and thinking they're, they're, they're Brian Tracy. It's just that just happens all the time. It's, it happens all the time. They think, they, they think that sales by getting orders and it's just so it's just so this elephant comes up in the room and think, oh, they've actually got this great deal and they think they've influenced it somehow. Well, the, 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 I always describe sales as having three levels. Genuine salespeople. Then you have order takers, which are basically the sole of the shoe. And then you have people who negotiate, i.e. they give stuff away to try and buy the business. Because genuine negotiation is a real skill and art form and very valuable. But the problem is that what most salespeople have conditioned buyers to do is wait till the end of the sales period so that they can do a fireside sale and discount 20, 30, 40, 80%. And they think somehow that's salesmanship. But that's often being driven by cretinous management and even more ignorant leadership who think that it's okay to go after revenue instead of creating value instead of building lifetime customers and genuinely acting as the partner of the customer. Because again, I don't see that happening anywhere near frequently enough. What's the remedy? Oh, no. no that, that, that's <laughs> a whole other uh, show. I can go and make a cup of coffee now. <laughs> I think there really needs a real shake-up. And this, is, this isn't just in, in, in IT. This is in, in general itself. I certainly believe that the... The whole of the industry needs to be retrained. They need to be really talking about, instead of just saying actually what partnerships, and some people do it well. I'm not saying it's throughout the, the channel. Some people do it well. But I think there's got to be a real analysis on actually how we create value, what sort of customers we want, what sort of partnerships we want, and actually train our salespeople better. You know, because I believe, and you touched on it earlier, Marcus, I believe that there's going to be less salespeople. Oh, yeah. I think people have realized they're suddenly thinking, do you know what? I've got all these road warriors out there. I've got all these telesales people making phone calls, cold calling, and the win rate is 3%, 4%, or whatever it is. I don't know the actual stats. And they're suddenly getting bored of it. And then, you know, what you really want is you want the prospect finding you, but you want your best salesperson on the call. You want your best negotiator on the call or your best salesperson in the meeting. Now, you might only have one, two, maybe three in your whole company out of a sales team of 20 or whatever it is. So companies are suddenly looking and thinking, you know, do I want this average salesperson to be, you know, going out to meet and hoping he can actually know, get down a deal or get into Microsoft or whoever it is? Or actually, do I want to spend 
And I'm not sort of talking about boring email campaigns. I'm talking about sophisticated marketing or awareness or PR, getting a prospect into your funnel and thinking, right, okay, now we need to get Billy Superstar in front of him and get that deal. And, and suddenly, before it would be men on the street or women on the street, people just foot, you know, foot soldiers getting out there as many as we can. And I think, I, I, I think COVID's done a lot of it now. I actually, people suddenly thinking, actually, we don't need that. We actually need that. We need customers coming into inquiries, being interested in what we're doing, whether that's through blogs, video, content. And I'm not talking shit content, Marcus. I'm talking interesting content. I'm not talking about, I've got, a, I've got a discount on 50 HP printers. Do you want to buy any? I'm talking, actually, it's generating an interest and it's actually making me do something. I think once you've got that, I think people are suddenly thinking, and I, I, I'm a massive fan of marketing before I wasn't because I've seen so much rubbish marketing. But if the marketing is good enough for raising awareness, I think you'll see a shift between less salespeople and a bit more investment in marketing. Okay, I, I'm going to challenge you on that because genuinely, I believe that 95% of marketing spend is utterly wasted. And I agree with you, good marketing is worth its weight in gold. and Good marketing is contextually relevant, adding value to people. It's helping them ask the right questions, raise awareness of the problems that exist or will exist within their business. It's user-generated content, and it's customer-generated content. It's customer hero stories, that kind of stuff, so people can relate. That's the kind of marketing that we actually engage with. The yeah. kind of marketing that you've just described, no one relate, uh, That's relates. That's right, yeah. I mean, the only people who ever ask for a product data sheet are people who can't buy. The only people who ask for a demo early in the sales cycle can't buy. They might be able to say maybe or no, but they cannot buy. And most salespeople are being driven by their metrics, which are driven by management and leadership, to do stupid things. They're focused on smile and dial. They're focused on number of demos, number of quotes, number of proposals, number of first meetings. Those are the wrong metrics. Entirely the wrong metrics. So if you measure the wrong things, you'll drive the wrong behavior. The metrics that I know work, because I've been training this for years in my clients, and they do work because we get forecasting accuracy down from 30 to 80% variance within three months to between half and 5% accurate. Okay. And these are daily unique effective conversations. Don't care how you get the conversation. It's not necessarily from a cold call initially. It could be through content, could be through referral, it could be through good LinkedIn outreach, but however you get that conversation, and it may well be from a cold call. The second thing is the velocity with which deals move through the pipeline. Because what you see in most sales pipelines is they look like Dolly Parton or Kim Kardashian, and they bulge in the wrong places for a pipeline. Now, a pipeline should look like a, a thong, not a pair of granny knickers. It should be wide at the top and all the good stuff should be discussed. <laughs> and the problem is that there is no emphasis on channel uh, on pipeline hygiene. The third is the number of deals moving from qualified opportunity to closable opportunity. And their definitions of qualified and closable are way off, by and large. And the fourth one is the number of qualified opportunities moving from first qualified meeting to second qualified meeting. Seven out of eight first meetings do not result in a second meeting. Now, that means all of that money that you've blown on MDF all that money that you've blown on lead generation has just gone blown out the window, 88% of it. And if you could recover 88% of your marketing budget and spend it on something more useful, what would you spend it on, business owners? 
What would you spend it on, MSP owners? What would you spend it on vendor um, CMOs? It just strikes me that you're wasting an enormous amount of time, effort, money, and resource on utterly masturbatory activities that are pleasing you, but they're not pleasing your customers, and they're not uh, making them fertile. Yeah, and the thing is, as well, is and it's saying getting feedback from the customer. You know, I, you know, I think it's a brave person in the vendor or, or the channel partner, or, you know, a customer like me to go and ask your customers actually feedback on your marketing. Most people will give you honest views. If you say, you know, what, what, you know, are you interested in our content? Is there anything we need to share or change, et cetera, et cetera? No, actually, Mark, your content's rubbish. Or this is actually... Most people will give you the feedback, but people don't want the feedback. People don't want the truth. They'd rather hide behind feeling good. Actually, we've got a number of likes and we've got a number of comments and I'm very gracious I won that award, but what does it mean? Does it mean I'm going to get loads more customers? No, it doesn't. It, it doesn't. I might get it maybe in the door, but it doesn't actually make me feel any more customers. So the points you made, I think, are, are interesting. Well, the one thing I would say, Marcus, is daily unique conversations. How do you measure that? Because you know there'll, there'll be a lot of salesmen out there who are very, very good at having conversations, and they all might be quite unique, but they could mean absolutely, excuse my French, fuck all. Absolutely. Uh, I speak fluent French as well, that way. A daily unique effective conversation means that they are in your ideal customer profile. Right. Um, you make the call, you get past the gatekeeper, you establish a verbal contract with them that you will tell them in 30 seconds why you're calling. And at the end of it, they will make a decision as to whether they're going to invite you in or not. Now, you need to train your salespeople to be relevant. The problem there is that most conversations descend into products very quickly, which means immediately you start having to justify and defend why you're calling. You need to enter the conversation that your prospect is already having or one that they will be having soon. So you need to engage your prospects in a way that is relevant and timely and contextually appropriate, which means that you stop talking about your company, your product, who your investors are, who your clients are, and you focus on their problems. And it goes something like, Mark, typically owners of recruitment agencies are telling us that they're frustrated that the market, whilst it's buoyant, hiring managers don't really understand how to give a brief. Others tell us that they're getting briefs, but then hiring managers don't really value the recruitment process because they don't see it as the number one responsibility that they have. And so they treat candidates poorly. And a few tell us that when they get candidates in front of a hiring manager, the hiring manager has an unstructured, ineffective way of interviewing. And as a result, they tend to hire poorly and then blame the recruiter. I don't suppose any of those problems are happening in your business yet, are they? Yeah? And the yet yeah. is the really important word there because that makes the net, the holes in the net very small because if they're not experiencing it now, it leaves the door open to it happening in the near future. And that then cre can create a conversation because if they don't suffer from any of those problems or they don't think that they will, then chances are they're not a prospect. But you have yeah. to have done the research. You have to have thought through who your customer is or your prospect is beforehand, not just smile and dial and go through 10,000 names randomly spouting bullshit about your product. But the thing is, Marcus, it, it, it's a real challenge. I see it as a challenge for channel companies out there because they, they've, got, they've got three options when they're recruiting. Option one, get a load of grads, come in who, you know, last year they were working at Sainsbury's and they just graduated and then they, they, they're trying to start, and they're going to have to sort of smile and dial and just get out there because they've got no credibility and they don't know nothing. They're just going on pure volume. The second one is, 
getting someone third, fourth jobber who's maybe in another industry who they can come over and train, which I actually think is probably the best way. Well, the third, third thing is getting the experienced person that can is, is expensive but can do what it says. Now, the challenge with the third option, Marcus, is people are getting burned. Because they, if they're going for like 60, 70, 80, basically, whatever it's going to be, and they're thinking, right, I'm, being, I'm, I'm buying the finish article, we're going to come in and do the job. Buying someone that's really good at interviews or, or has found another company or has not been trained. So they're thinking they're buying Ronaldo and they're actually getting a second vision player. And, it, and it's a big team. problem in our industry. Okay. It's a big uh, problem. Absolutely. And I put this in uh, the ball back in the employer's court. First of all, managers need to learn how to recruit. And that means they need to make sure that those interviews are an uncomfortable experience for the seller because the person you hire is the person they become under pressure. That's the first thing. The second thing is you need to learn how to get to the truth. And most people recruit for skills, experience, and historical results, which are backward-looking lag indicators and give you no indication of future performance. The indicators of future performance are things like habits. What are the habits that will make someone in this role successful? And how do I get the evidence of those habits out in the interview? And a habit is something that someone can describe multiple examples in quick succession, and they can describe those stories backwards without um, hesitation. If you ask someone to tell you a story about how they won some business, and then you ask them to tell it backwards, if they've actually done it, then they can tell it in relatively quick succession. If they haven't and they're making it up, as what happened once when I was in recruitment, a guy claimed to have won a £17 million um, SAP deal. And as a result of that, I uh, was going to put him forward for interview, asked him to do it backwards. And because you get cognitive dissonance, you have to go to the beginning and then back to the end and then beginning and back to the end. Then it's staccato. And that then is a red flag and you can challenge them. They need a planning habit, an organization habit, a listening habit, a questioning habit, a prospecting habit. But no one looks for that in the brief. And so they brief recruiters poorly, and they say, go out and find me one of these. And then that's a word search. That's no good. Cognitive abilities, the ability to bounce back, the ability to demonstrate resilience and learn on the hoof, the attitudes, beliefs, and values, self-concept, concept about being a salesperson, uh, or a marketer, understanding their relationship with the customer as one of equals instead of putting the customer on a pedestal, a strong money concept, believing that you always tell the truth, that you're there to serve the customer. They're not there to serve you. We exist because of the customer, not in spite of them. If we're working with partners to see ourselves as helping the partner achieve their goals, they're not in business as a get out sales free card or free sales team, they are there to, do, uh, to achieve their own goals and objectives. But no one teaches managers this stuff. And so the interview process is one thing. Then the onboarding process, especially with veterans, that first 120 days, you need to establish whether or not you've hired badly, because the rule is better no breath than bad breath. So if you've hired <laughs> badly, you want to make sure that you pick that up in the first week or the first couple of weeks so you can get rid of them if they can't change. And that onboarding process, that first 120 days is when the new employee is putting you, your company, their manager onto probation. Have I made a terrible choice? Is my boss an ass? Do I like this? Was this the job I was sold or have I been sold a pup? Was I better off where I was before? Uh, would I be better off somewhere else? 
And that 120-day onboarding process and the pre-onboarding are things that most managers are too damn lazy or stupid to implement as well, or ignorant. They just don't know any better. It sounds horrible saying this, Marcus, but there's just a serious lack of talent in the market. People think sales is uh, as an easy job. And it's to be bad at it, yeah, there, it is an easy job. There's so many bad salespeople out in the market, not just in IT, in, in just in general, that, that don't take it seriously, that don't invest in their future, that don't have a sales methodology, that don't have any form of even, even good communication skills or rapport building skills or even the emotional intelligence, that unfortunately, they are the majority. The bad things are the majority. There's so lack of good salespeople now. I'd, I'd almost go as far as, you know, it's 25% good, 75% bad. You know, maybe, maybe more, maybe more. I, lo- I love your optimism. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, uh, again, for those of you who've listened to the podcast in the past, you'll be familiar with Price's Law. And Price's Law states that 50% of your production will come from the square root of the number of people in your organization. 10 salespeople, three produce 50%. 100 distributors, 10 will produce 50%. 10,000 partners, 100 partners will produce 50%. So it's closer to 2 to 4% that are really good. Yeah. And they produce at least 50% of your revenue. And that's I've seen this across the board. 2 to 4% of partners produce 40 to 60% of the revenue. So what on earth are you doing going out and building a land army when what you should be doing is building a special forces unit, investing all that time and money in either developing them or recruiting people just like them, and then get rid of the rest. Cull 80 to 90% of your sales and marketing operation. Use that money to really bolster up so that you've got Joey, who is the top producer, meeting BP's board and helping him get the partners in who are right, training the partners. But that isn't happening because I see too many CFOs running companies, bean counters, who are worried about cost cutting rather than investing. And they spend so much time shopping away muscle that there's nothing left. And I I think you're right. What will happen from this month on is there will be a bloodbath in sales in the channel. And lots and lots, I mean, hundreds of thousands of salespeople worldwide are going to be let go. Millions. It's not too soon. It couldn't come uh, at a better time. COVID is a blessing. It's funny. I called called this, Mark, because I literally said a post out last week saying, if you're not back in the room September 1st, you're gone. You're finished. Your company think you're rubbish. They don't value you. They're coping without you. And it's almost like being the last person picked on the football pitch at school. No one wants you in the team. They just don't want you in the team. So you might as well pick that a CV me. up, go and get your CV and try and get another job. You just, there's, no, there's no point doing it. And I worry for people because I think there's a real lack of understanding what's going on. They're still hoping, end of October. They, a lot of people I speak to, oh, yeah, I think I'm going back 1st November. You're not going back. You're not going back. So if you think you're going back November the 1st, forget it. It's not going to happen. It's just impossible. You know, don't be so ignorant to think that they they suddenly will say, actually, oh, let's get Johnny back in the building. It's November 1st and we're everything will be hunky-dory. They've coped without you for, for six months. It's not going to happen. So you need to get your CV and be realistic or go and get going into another industry. <laughs> okay, so let's tackle the recruitment issue around channel. In your experience, what are the qualities that one should look for in a fantastic channel manager? If you look at the best of the best that you've placed and worked with, 
what are their uh, what are the red threads, the qualities that run through run through them? Well, they sell, they deal with osmosis. They see, you know, they just don't go out. They just don't go out and preach and train to to partners about their product or service. You know, you touched on it earlier. There's no, there's no point just spouting out how good your product is. They're actually working with the partners and actually getting a proper relationship with them. They're actually going out um, doing co-selling opportunities with them. I see that. Yes, you know, you touched on it earlier. I am a, I am a bit of a past performance um, person, Marcus. I do like that. I think past performance is an indicator of future performance. But I also, the like you said, touched on about paradigms. If I look at someone's paradigms and they've got a, they've got serious habits where they've been seriously successful, so they've got track record of onboarding partners, they've got a track record of onboarding customers or a track record of performance, and they can document, they can they can prove it. I think that's a good indicator they can do it again. The challenge is a lot of people can't do that. It's about repeated past performance multiple times. That's a good indicator. But having sold an ERP system into an enterprise is not a pattern of habit. And it's looking for the habit of past performance. And it doesn't necessarily have to be. So you sec- that second group that you talked about, if you can look for a habit of success in sport. So for example, one company I know at, proactively goes out and recruits rugby players who have been in teams that have consistently performed well. And they've consistently, uh, not every time, you know, they're not 100% winners, but they look for people who are good team players. And I think a great channel manager is collaborative. Yeah. They are a team player. So you're not going to be a great channel manager if you are a selfish uh, top performer lone wolf. You need to actually care about your partner's success. And you need to spend time training them, coaching them. I interviewed a guy called Kieran Cron about 18 months ago, and he won the unlikely award of being the world's best channel manager for HubSpot. And I was really skeptical. But then I interviewed him, and it was just like listening to a a symphony that was conducted and performed perfectly. He spent 70% of his time in his customer's business, working with management, working with sales, working with operators. He spends it coaching, strategizing, training, developing, working on sales together, midwifing deals, going out on customer visits. That's the kind of thing that a channel manager needs to do. If you look at the qualities of a great channel manager, they are so much closer to a general manager than they are to a sales manager. And a channel chief is closer in profile to a CEO than they are to a VP of sales. If you look at a channel manager, they need to be good at analysis and decision-making. They need to be adaptable. They need to be able to address conflict. They have to be really effective coaches and very collaborative. They have to communicate with influence and uh, build trust because they have no power. They need to be able to control and close, again, through influence and trust. They need to be very effective at goal setting. They need to be powerful managers of relationships. They need to be incredible planners and strategizers, managing resources, solving problems, very process orientated, be able to read the situation because they're spending a large proportion of their time refereeing other people's children. They have to be highly self-aware. They need to be action orientated. And they need to be able to balance all of that, wearing those 90 different hats uh, in Forrester's infographic, all of that in the space of a 24-hour or an eight-hour working day. That takes real business acumen. It takes real skill. And it requires a load of scar tissue. 
So if you're listening to this, please stop recruiting dim, nice, but dim and greenhorn salespeople into your channel. They probably need, what, 10, 15 years of good, good old-fashioned scar tissue. They need to have carried a quota. They need to have managed. They need to have learned how to coach. Don't put people in who are barely out of short trousers. Why do you think people do that? Why do you think there's this, this fascination now? Is it because the technology's fast-paced? There is a fascination of hiring, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm now over that, over that period, but under 40s, that seems to be the period of people want to hire. Well, I've been interviewing a bunch of uh, young salespeople intentionally to find this out, what it's like on their end. And on average, they're turning over at least once a year. They do not feel valued. They don't have any growth opportunities. And they leave at the drop of a pin because someone's offering them a bit more money. And early in their career, they are money motivated because, first of all, they start out with crap basics and they've got to struggle and strive just to pay the rent. But there comes a point where you really need to focus on their growth and development. And I think the mistake people make is that they hire five in the hope that one or two will work out. Yeah. Uh, But that creates the reputation of being a churn and burn outfit. And people talk. Social media, which most of the leadership and management haven't yet mastered, and their young salespeople are completely mastered. As a result, they're getting this reputation and people are talking behind their backs. And yeah, you know, I'm working with one recruiter in the SaaS space and there are certain companies he cannot get candidates to go to because of the reputation that they built precisely because they're doing what you're saying. So I think it's because they want to hire people who are cheap and pay peanuts, you get monkeys. And the, the other problem is that they're too lazy or they won't invest in the recruitment training for managers the recruitment process, they should be paying people like you a monthly retainer to build the bench. So they've got five to seven A players lined up for every key position. They should be paying recruiters, retainers, and not fucking around on contingency where it forces recruiters to just basically try and be first past the post with the date stamp for a CV. They shouldn't recruit reactively which is what they do, because they don't see recruitment as their number one function. They see it as an interruption to their day job. And so they recruit reactively, and they take whatever's available in the time allotted, because they have to have a warm body on a seat. And I've got one client who asked this question, which is a doozy of a question, is he better than an empty chair? And in fact, we discovered that one of the people that uh, we assessed and wasn't, so we got rid, the three months following losing this guy, sales had gone up in the territory 30%. This guy was actively getting in the way of deals because people wouldn't do business with him. Uh, That is worrying. That's that's frightening. That's frightening, actually. But that's normal. That's what I see across the board. And there, there is a huge dearth of talent in sales, but it's worse in management. Sandler did a research study that we published in January, and it said that only 6% of managers were fit for purpose in sales. Six. And it's lower in channel. That's a depressing fact. Uh, If you get 2% who are really brilliant, and there are some out there, because I've worked with them uh, and I've interviewed them, they are breathtakingly good. And they're CEOs of the future, I'm convinced. Because they've got a breadth of understanding that the salespeople don't. Well, the, the challenge is as well, Marcus, when it's so bad out there, even even pretty good or average stands out the country miles above that. that. That is one of the issues. 
But then that suggests that management and leadership are not asking themselves the right questions. If you want better answers, ask better questions. And they're asking questions like, how are we going to make our number? What do we have to do to make our number this quarter? Instead of what do we have to do to build a special forces sales team and a special forces channel that delivers to us profitable lifetime customers? Those would be much better questions to be asking themselves instead of this short-term focus on the here and now in order to try and, you know, because, you know, another myth um, is you're only as good as your last quarter. Well, if that's the case, then virtually everyone in sales and management shouldn't be in the job. And that's why the turnover is so high. But if you ask the question, well, how can we create a sales team that is loyal, highly engaged, highly effective, that serves their customers, serves their partners, delivers to us only ideal customers who have problems we can genuinely fix. And then once they've landed those accounts, expands them and penetrates those accounts so that they turn those accounts into a marketplace instead of a customer. Now, these are the kind of questions that management should be asking, but they're not. Yeah, absolutely. You're bang on, Marcus, yeah. And it, and it is a problem throughout the channel. There's no doubt about that. It is a problem throughout the channel. So tell me this. You've got a, an opportunity to go back in time. What advice would you give yourself right at the beginning of starting your business about approaching recruitment differently? It's, it's, a, really good, it's a really good question there, Marcus, because if I thought of it initially, if I went go back in time, I would think, well, I would maybe concentrate on PR and branding and getting that message out. At the end of the day, I want to get the message out to more customers. That's what I want to get out. I want to get that message out. And I'd probably double down on social media a bit more. But also as well, I think I'd hire more slowly. You know, I've made the mistakes as well. I've looked at recruiters and I've looked at uh, people I've hired and I'm thinking, actually, you can do the job. But normally they actually can't do the job. And I I actually think I would try and... I would try and double down on social media, even though it's a long time since I started. But, you know, the, you know, you could have done this 10 or 15 years ago where I thought you could get this message out. I'd really concentrate on the quality of the brand and the marketing. I mean, I'm not talking shit marketing as well, Mark, because I really want to make sure that. I'm not talking email bloody campaigns saying do this. I'm talking some real interesting content that actually the customers are interested. So get some feedback from the customers. And, um, and yeah, hiring, hiring slower. You know, I, I, I've hired fast before and it's, it's normally gone wrong. Uh, Marion Haste, Repent at Leisure. Same thing in the channel. Take your time. Before you put a ring on a partner's finger or you hire someone for your business, make sure they're fit for purpose. Make sure your values and intent are aligned. Uh, make sure that you agree that, that uh, you know, mutually that they will accept training and coaching. All of this kind of stuff. I, I interviewed Joe Mullings. I don't know if you come across Joe, but his recruiters bill an average of three to five times more than the average in his industry. And if you haven't watched his video on performance versus trust, that's really worth uh, a look at. Whether you're a recruiter or you're a hiring manager, then have a look at his video there because it gives you fantastic insight into how to build really effective sales teams and hire well. So uh, again, one of the things I would look at, because uh, you know, I'd spent 10 years in recruitment as well. And I think one of the things that I regret not doing because I feel I let my customers down was I didn't challenge them anywhere near enough at the brief-taking stage. Because I think that I remember going to see um, a client at Intel and they gave us a seven-line brief. 
And we were meant to be placing people on a 70 to 100,000 pound base. And that's the price of a small mortgage, uh, certainly up north anyway. Then that campaign, I had a hiring manager phone me three minutes after the interview was due to start, asking me to fax across the CV. So he'd done no prep. The preparation he was going to do was when he got the thing off the fax, was to walk from his office to the interview room. And that was the amount of preparation he was going to put in. And this is somebody who's meant to represent the brand. We know that the single highest hidden cost in any business is wrong hires, especially in sales and in sales management. In enterprise, the cost of a wrong hire in sales can be anywhere between 35 and 125 times base salary. Do you know, Marcus, do you, do you know, and I don't know the actual percentage, but I get enough feedback from it, they don't even read the CV. You no. send the CV over, they look at the last bloody company that candidate worked for, and they just say, get it in. They well, don't look at it. They don't, they, especially a factual document of bad performance. They might scan it, but they don't read it. You know, that, that's why I've almost gone away from CVs now. I'm, I'm, I'm producing more videos for clients around, around questions. I'm almost saying, look, give me the five questions you want. I'll ask the candidate. I'll send you the video. But let's be honest, you're not even going to look at the CV anyway. You're only going to look at it, like, like you said, literally 30 seconds before it. It's almost like a piece of paper. All right, I'm interviewing Marcus. All right. Oh, I hear you live in Tunbridge Wells, Marcus. Oh, great. And it's off interviewing. Well, as in fairness, the CV is a sales and marketing document. So it should be treated with the contempt that it generally deserves. I always describe an interview as a conversation between two adults where both sides are lying through their teeth. And it shouldn't be. It should be a really deep dive investigation to see if there is a good mutual fit. But again, part of the problem here is that people don't value recruitment. And I put put a larger proportion of the blame on recruiters, you know, the recruitment industry, because as an industry, it's earned the reputation that it deserves. But good recruiters are worth their weight in gold, and they should be retained, and they shouldn't be stiffed on fees. I have recruitment clients who get 50% of first year's total gross emoluments. That could be five to seven times more than the competition, worth every penny, absolutely worth every penny. Because if you place someone like, uh, who's good, they can make their money back 350 times fold in the first year. So, Mark, tell me this. What are you wrestling with? What are you struggling with at the moment? We've almost touched on it, Marcus, I think. Marcus, I think it's um, getting the balance of how many recruiters I'm going to have and the amount of qualified customers that I'm going to get. So, you know, I've dealt with, you know, traded over four, 500 customers in the channel and placed, you know, currently placing those guys. But there's a percentage of them that aren't right for us. And we probably haven't been brave enough to actually say to them, do you know what? We shouldn't be working with you. We haven't got the right relationship. You, you don't want a proper relationship. We, we can add value, but you don't, want to, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do proper briefs. You don't want to do it the way we want to do it. There's no synergy. But also as well, that balance of like, again, I'm not saying rubbish marketing, but that balance of actually making sure we've got enough good content coming out and we've got that special forces unit. Because there's no doubt about it. We, we, we did have that, people on the street mentality. We started recruiting quite a lot of people, but I've decided over the last two months, and COVID has accelerated that, that it's going to be much more special forces unit, you know, absolute quality operators in the market that are going to be well-trained, well-briefed, sniper mentality, you know, perfect, you know, SAS recruiters rather than just Joe Halfwit who is going to do a keyword search and send off CVs. (laughs) 
make sure you listen to that interview with Joe Mullings. It's coming out in a couple of weeks because it, it, he's got the operating model you're just describing. And I, I think you'll thoroughly enjoy that. Definitely fire those customers. The bottom 80%, maybe, I mean, it takes you, uh, someone brave to do that. But chances are the bottom 80% only produce 20% of the profit. And focus your attention only on ideal customers. So if you look at your top 20%, top 5%, what are the qualities that they share? What are their attitudes towards recruitment? How do they behave? Do they take your advice and direction? Are they willing to learn? And do they have a growth mindset? Do they look at the value that the people that you place are going to bring? Or are they just looking at the cost of the fees? So again, I would definitely take a blank sheet of paper and redesign your operation from scratch as if you were starting from the beginning. But with all the money and all the budget you have available for salaries, for marketing, um, for account management, still available to you. And then redesign that bit your business from there as if you were starting on the 1st of January, brand new. Yeah, exactly what we've been talking about, Marcus, really. It's almost like Robbers of Thunder Web 2.0. We looked at the thing, you know, post-COVID. What we, and it's not just COVID that's done this. It's almost like this was coming. Maybe it was just the shake-up that was needed. But suddenly, just getting average recruiters. No one wants to do with an average recruiter. Yeah. You know, they're not, they don't want to do with an average salesman. They just don't want to do it. They actually want to do it with someone that actually knows what they're talking about, got some credibility, that's going to be giving advice, push back, challenge negotiate the offer properly for them, not just be, oh, hi, Joe, I've done a keyword search and here, here he is, he's got technical in his profile and he's got a good match. It's like, God's sake, you know, what are we doing? Absolutely. We've come to time, sadly. Tell me something. Give me one or two podcast books or videos that you uh, believe people should be paying attention to so that it, they can recruit better. It, it's funny, I... I, I don't I don't read books and people are asking, I'm not I'm not an avid reader. I learn from putting out content and reading the comments and DMs that I'm getting. But I'm a big fan, I'm a big fan of Gary Vornacek, you know, just going out there and doing it. You know, there's there's no easy way from doing it. It's just hard work and learning. But I, I think about it when, you know, I, I like the, 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 brut, uh, the brutal sales truth from uh, Brian Burns. I, I listen to his sort of stuff. I think he's been good. But to me, I think trial and error. You can do it from your customers. You, you know, if you're going out there, getting putting out content, you can learn a lot from doing the, 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 the analytics, look at the direct messaging and the DMs you're getting from your customers. I like getting live feedback. I'm not so one for theory. You know, yes, of course, there's you know, lots of good authors out there, et cetera, but I, I do like people that are actively doing it. So anyone that's actively in the space of recruiting, or actively in the space of social media, or actively in the space of selling you, and you can actually look at them and think, right, I can start reading their comments and reading their following their content and thinking, actually, this is good stuff. If I think it's good, someone else is going to think it's good that's got the same mindset as me. So I'm, I'm very much of actually looking at content, reading comments and direct messages rather than just looking at books. But podcasts, I'm, very, I'm a big fan of Gary Vaynerchuk, Stephen Bartlett from Social Chain. I like his stuff as well. I think it's good. I'm going to recommend a uh, book for you. It's available on audio, so you don't have to uh, read it. It's called Authority Content by David Jennings, J-E-N-Y-N-S. And that's how you build your personal brand on social media, delivering valuable content that's meaningful and relevant. David Jennings. Uh, J-E-N-Y-N-S. Excellent. Uh, Mark, how can people get hold of you? Uh, LinkedIn. 
I respond to any message on LinkedIn. So um, I, I think it's important. So yeah, LinkedIn straight away, obviously via our website, robertson-sun.com or my email address or, or phone number, which I'll happily provide you with. Excellent. And what's the address or the name of your podcast? The Channel Chat Podcast Show. Excellent. Mark Sumner, thank you so much. Really appreciate you being on. No, thanks, Marcus. Thanks for your time. Take care. Take care. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please get in touch at marcuskauke at me.com. Or if you want to be a guest or you think you know someone who would be, then please get in touch either LinkedIn or via email. Also, please like, comment, share, and subscribe. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then please like, comment, and share. Take care. Bye-bye.